And that's The Smiths with a track called You've Got Everything Now from their 1984 self-titled album. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. Bring you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, I'll be crossing time, space and genre with the finest in indie pop. And this week's special guest is going to be Claire Ward, fanzine writer and the co-founder and owner of Sarah Records. Yes, we are talking indie royalty on this show. So I've got that interview that are split up into about uh, four easy to digest little segments. So alongside that interview, which is quality chat, because we've got so much to talk about, is another award-worthy playlist. Yes, indeed. Anyway, I think um, I've got a lot to cram in and not that much time. So we're going to cut the chat, play the next track. This is going to be The Sea Urchins and the track called Christine, Christine. Christine, Christine? Yes, that's right. I'm not going to edit that bit out. Anyway, take it away.
all the way from 1988. That's uh, The Sea Urchins and the track titled Pristine Christine. That was the first single that came out on the Sarah record label. And this week's special guest is Claire Ward, who co-founded the label with Matt Haynes. And um, also she ran a fanzine um, in the early 80s, all all the way through to um, probably setting up Sarah Records. So I've got that interview. But before we hear that, I think we should play another track and then the first part of the interview. This is going to be The Orchids and the track called I've Got to Have It. from Scotland that's the Orchids and the track called I've Got a Habit that was the second uh, single that was released on Sarah Records back in 88 this is David Esau and this is going to be the first part of my interview with Claire who co-founded Sarah Records where we talk about um, yes where do you put indie pop always put it down between the years of 1983 to 87 basically the years of the Smiths and I probably say this in the interview as well anyway Claire take it away Yes, and I think that's quite interesting, actually, where do you put indie pop down to as well? Because a lot of people would say it's um, still very much thriving, I suppose. But yeah. So, yeah, so I was 16 in 84, and I guess I'd got really into music over the previous two or three years, but I hadn't really been to that many gigs, um, being in Harrogate and being quite young, and hadn't hadn't been aware of the sort of more obscure scene at all so 
I, I remember vividly trying to work out how stuff ever could get in the charts if you didn't really hear it till it was in the charts, you know, not very many years yes. before I started writing a, a fanzine with some quite obscure bands in it. So I think I suppose things do happen very quickly when you're that age, don't they? You sort of get into something and you've got the time and the energy to pursue it, you know, yes. really quite quickly. So um, I heard, I remember I was doing my O-levels, so it was sort of May, June 84. And I used to like, I probably liked the music on Kid Jensen's show more than I liked the music on John Peel's show at that point, but um, I certainly liked John Peel more, if that makes sense. But, you know, when John Peel started, it was kind of bedtime and mum would tell me to turn the radio off yes. um, quite often. But Kid Jensen was talking about fanzines and I'd never heard of fanzines previously. Oh, excuse me. Uh, but I loved writing. I, I always wanted to be a novelist. I still do when I grow up. Um, but, so I love writing. I love music. And I thought, oh, there's these things called fanzines. Um, I'll do one of them uh, without ever having seen one and without really having any idea what it involved. I just kind of thought, oh, fantastic. That's what I do. And uh, wrote off for some and sort of made it my post-O level summer holiday project. Yes. Originally sort of roped a couple of friends into it who lost interest quite quick. And uh, so it ended up just being me. Right away. And it was interesting because obviously for for um, us who remember those days, you you sort of, I mean, for me, it was kind of John Peel would mention one and I would try and scribble it down. I never listened to the John Peel live, uh, show mm. live. I'd always have to record it and then listen to it several times because all the songs were new and sometimes quite tricky on the ear because they were quite, um, yeah, quite difficult. But, but then after about the second or third listen, one would sort of go, oh, yes, I've kind of got the gist of that. And so he would sometimes read out these addresses and then you'd have to send... Coins, wasn't it? <laughs> Taped to bits of cardboard, yes, which you, yeah. you mentioned in this chapter, which I sort of brought a smile because I'd slightly forgot those days of taping coins and uh, putting them in these envelopes. We used to, as a fanzine writer, when we started doing the label, you used to get these envelopes with holes in where obviously there had been coins. And I think people used to say, oh, the postman would steal it. Well, all the post operatives. But I don't think they would. If it wasn't taped down, it would just kind of work its way out and bash a hole through the envelope you yes, know? so is... yeah yeah you learn quite quickly they needed to be sellotaped down and uh yeah so I was really lucky he read out my address after my first fanzine and then I got a flurry of orders obviously and I used to sell them at gigs um once probably once I passed my driving test a bit more and at you know the record shops in Leeds and there was a little record shop in Harrogate as well at that time and was just able to expand from one issue to the next you know then I think a number of pages and eventually the fancy went from A5 to A4 and I guess it got a professional wouldn't really be the word word but I guess it got a little bit more professional as well so um so yeah I did six issues of that fancy fetch over sort of summer of 84 to summer of 87. Wow, that's fantastic. That is virtually indie pop, isn't it? You know, because 87 was when the Smiths kind of kind of decided to, um, well, not decided, but it all slightly crashed and burned into it. So um, after that, we were all sort of in certain mourning, apart from you, because cause obviously the, the next part of the journey is is the great Sarah Records. But just before going on to that, did you, I mean, because cause you've done your O-levels and then your A-levels, and then sort of, did you do go to university um, yeah, so that's what took me to Bristol, actually. So I'd never been to Bristol before I went to look around the university. It just seemed, I really wanted to go to a city that was big enough to have um, a decent number of gigs on. 
and I wanted to go quite a long way away. <laughs> so Bristol beckoned. Uh, didn't know at all. Didn't know anyone there. Uh, but funnily enough, the fanzine community kind of came into it. I think it was only probably a couple of months before I moved down there after A-levels when I found three fanzine writers in Bristol and, and wrote off to them all and kind of said something like, here's a copy of my fanzine, will you send me one of yours, which um, people used to do quite a lot. Um, and got into, and that's how I first got in touch with Matt from Are You Scared to Get Happy, who I then ran Sarah with. Yes. And there was, there was a guy in Bristol who did a fanzine called Smiths Indeed, actually, so I was obviously a huge Smiths fan. And I think it was a third fanzine in Bristol. So when I got there, I certainly met up with a couple of those people just really to try and make some friends outside of the kind of university course thing, sort of looking to make my real friends, I guess, who were into the sort of things I was into as opposed to just studying the same degree as me. Yes, because the other thing that sometimes does come through and sometimes doesn't when one reminisces about these the glorious 80s is that, that, that so there was so much political there was so much po- there was so much political angst going on you know there was obviously there'd been the Falklands and then the miners crisis um, the miners mm. you know battles and and then you know there was red wedge and and at the same time there was a lot of things that because you also mentioned this in this fantastic chapter where you mentioned becoming a vegetarian and eating chickpeas tahini and uh, herbal tea and I remember when you mentioned herbal tea something called barley cup that we also started oh, drinking oh god yes that was horrible wasn't it it was uh, oh. it was it, and it was from Poland I always remember wondering if there was a, a factory you know I wanted to go and visit the barley cup factory in Poland because because <laughs> it must exist but it was the, you know the only thing I knew that came out of Poland and it was this weird coffee substitute which um one drunk for several years because uh, it was the thing to and do and you tried really hard to sort of convince yourself you liked it didn't you well really, you did because I, I think it was caffeine free wasn't it, was it? that was the yes. sort of we were so herbal pure. tea point as we well. Were, we, were, we, were we, were, we were trailblazers. We were trailblazers, and it was kind of interesting because you did, you know, you tried it with sugar, and then you got told off, and then you tried it with honey, and you vaguely didn't get so much told off, but unless you wouldn't eat with a vegan, <laughs> because it was like, it was such a, you know, it was one of those periods, and it might still be, you know, the case. But I know that that at those ages in life, you know, there were so many things to to duck and dive and and embrace or hug at least. So um, yeah, and it was all going well with the barley cup, and then someone mentioned. That that Chernobyl had happened and that, you know, Poland had got, you know, anything from Poland was probably contaminated. So we went back to drinking coffee and, and not worrying about <laughs> the caffeine anymore. It was, it was. God, I never heard that. That's probably about the time I started drinking barley coffee. I never, I suppose everything's very black and white when you're that age, isn't it? I mean, things are right or things are wrong. And it, and it, it, it feels as you get older, sort of, harder to take such a sort of sure stance on things I think which is I guess is the ultimate why the young frustrate the old and the old frustrate (laughs) the young but equally I don't remember ever feeling like I had to drink barley cup and that kind of stuff I never felt at all pressured it just seemed like a decision that was the right thing to do but Yes, but say equally, I don't really remember any of my friends really joining me in it, and certainly I don't remember sort of thinking the worst of them for not doing. Yeah. Well, there was a certain amount of guilt, wasn't there, around certain issues? You know, one felt bad, and you know, it's like using Ecova, and and knowing it didn't really do such a great job cleaning your clothes, but you felt <laughs> you felt better for doing it. Somehow there was a sort of mixture of being, you know, like trying to do the right thing and feeling guilty about everything. You know, whether your yeah. oranges came from South Africa and whether you know fruit came from the right place and 
whether sort of chickens were happy with their eggs. You know, it was it was it was great. You know, and I look back on it with great amusement. But but I also I still sort of live a bit like that. Don't I think? <laughs> well, I suppose we do. You know, it's just that I think the difference is that one just gets on with it now. Whereas I think when one's younger, you, you know, you, you try to convince other people or try and convert other people. I suppose that's the thing. Whereas now Maybe, I just yeah. I think that's yeah. it, because when you also in the book mentioned going to the peace camps as well, which was like, oh, yes, of course, that's what we were also doing at weekends or weeks to, um, yeah, keep ourselves. Yes, yeah. I remember my mum getting quite upset because I'd um, gone up to interview Memworth Hill Peace Camp in her car and she was like, well, the secret police are now going to have my number plate. Thank you very much for that. And I was like, you know, because they used to drive past all the time and log the number plates yes. of anyone who went there. And uh, and she was, I think she was quite cross with me. But equally, it, it sort of seemed at the one hand very likely that the police would be sort of spying on low-level activists and at the same time quite farcical. And of course, you know, everything that we now know is that they had completely um, infiltrated all of those groups and were spying on everybody in the most awful ways, you know, with the with the whole sort of um, undercover people fathering babies and all of that stuff, and people thinking they were in relationships they weren't in. I mean, what a waste of time and resource, really. Oh, dreadful, dreadful. So, look, you did six copies of the, the fanzine. Just roughly, how many did you manage to sell? You know, what was the kind of circulation at that at the time? So, I think the first one was about 500 copies, and I think the last ones were sort of 1,500, and it kind of grew up through the thousand. so... I worked quite hard at selling it, um, and I used to enjoy selling it at gigs, actually, and particularly if you were going to a gig that none of your friends were very interested in, so you were going on your own, and I guess particularly as a, as a girl, basically, sort of 16, 17, 18, it, it gave you something to do in the gap between the bands and yes. a, a feeling that, you know, you didn't just feel like you were standing there like a lemon on your own being really, obviously, with no friends, you were sort of there with a purpose and doing something, so, um, so I used to quite enjoy doing that, so... Yeah, and then, you know, it would go into Jumbo in Leeds and at some point in that time, Crash opened in Leeds and there's a record shop in Harrogate and I took the later issues down to Rough Trade and obviously the ones I did around the time I moved to Bristol, the last couple then went in Bristol record shops as well. So, so yeah, it, it, it sort of built up, I suppose, because I got the money back on each one and I was working that Saturday job. Then you'd take the money from the previous one that would all come back and have saved a bit more and be able to put the next one and be able to expand it a bit. And then that kind of became the sort of my half of the starting capital for Sarah once the, mm. the last one had finished as well. So, God, you must have had so many coins in your house. <laughs> <laughs> you, must have, you must have had shoeboxes of these coins. Yeah, I can't remember that at all, but... Um, yeah, logically, logically so. Or, or maybe you just spent coins all the time and you never really... I don't know how often I came across a £20 note at that age, for instance. No, I don't think we came across too many £20 notes in the 80s. Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Claire from Sarah Records. And also what we were talking about in that conversation about the early years was a, t- um, a chapter that she's got in a book that's just come out titled Ripped, Torn and Cut Pop politics and punk fanzines from 1976 it's come out on manchester university press um it's got a lot of fantastic chapters including one from claire um and that's slightly uh, made me realize i needed to um, track her down and do an interview because um obviously sarah records being very interesting and important in the world of indie pop but also hearing a bit more about the, the world of the fanzine writer anyway i've got another three bits of that interview to still to come but i think we should play something from the field mice as we always do this is emma's house 
Field Mice with a track called Emma's House. This is David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86 Show and I will be there. But anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Claire Ward from Sarah Records, where we talk about, yes, meeting Matt in Bristol land, who was also running a fanzine titled Are You Scared to Get Happy? So, Claire, give us the insight to those early years with Matt. Not at all. So I'd written off for I Scared to Get Happy. Matt did that with his friend Mark. And so I wrote off for it. And um, actually, recently, not too long ago, I found the letter I'd sent Matt in the loft because we've, we've got a sort of random um, collection of each other's stuff still, I think. Uh, at one point, I couldn't find my birth certificate and, and convinced him eventually to t- tip out his loft. And of course, he had got my birth certificate. But um, so I've got the first letter I wrote him, which is just mortifying. <laughs> He's just like, oh, God, 18-year-old me. Um, so no, he sort of sent his fanzine back in a slightly 
not disdainful way, but certainly nothing that inspired me to meet him. And then um, I tried to flog in my fanzine at a gig in my first term at university, um, Primal Screamer supporting Julian Cope. And um, he was just like, oh, you must be Claire, you've sent me it. And again, there wasn't really any conversation that ensued. But I'd, um, someone at university had said to me, why don't you, if you're doing a new fanzine, why don't you put a flexi disc with it? And I'd, I'd thought, oh, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. And I'd found um, the sea urchins who a friend of mine was at university with and also the group from who are a local band. So I sort of got my bands for my flexi disc and I just really needed to go to know Actually, I knew where to get them made as well. That was all straight. What I didn't know was if I could go go down on the National Express coach from, from Yorkshire, where I'd be back in the holidays, pick up a box of flexi discs and carry them back on the bus. I didn't know how heavy they'd be. I think I was doing a thousand flexis with that. And um, I pretty much walked past Matt's door every day to get to university. So I tried to stick a note through his letterbox because obviously no one had telephones, you know. And no, um, of course, he opened the door and made me jump at sort of eight o'clock in the morning and um, invited me round another day to talk about it, I think was what happened. And uh, then we just really hit it off. So, And he ended up, in that sort of crazy trusting way, I ended up writing him a cheque, I think, for my entire savings to get this flexi-disc made and trusting him to take my master tape up to London and sort of sorted it all out for me. And I went down on the bus and fetched them. But it didn't seem at all crazy to write this virtual stranger a check or trust him with the check made out to press and plan, whichever way around it was. Wow, I know that is you know looking back, but then you know, of course, there was a lot of things we did when you, in your youth that you think actually that was kind of okay, but it could have been so much different. It it could have gone wrong, yes, <laughs> and I'm sure there were things that went wrong in that scene, but um, yeah, yes, they, that was they good. Didn't for me, thankfully. So then, so. when your you know your university, you did a degree and finished that, and then the fanzine finished. Then did. I'm just assuming this. Then, did the record label sort of start to happen after the the you know you finish your course? No, we um we started at the end of my first year of university actually. So um I was 19 when Pristine Christine came out, the first record we put out. Um and the band, most of the band were 19 as well. So um I was quite like the fact we were very much um of an age with the bands, and it wasn't kind of like Spengali record label people and, and young kids. So through my last couple of years of university, um, the record label obviously got busier and busier. And um, I do remember going to Revolver, who are our um, distributors, and we had a manufacturing and distribution deal with them and sort of saying, actually, we need to put these releases back from kind of June time into July, August, and then being like, well, July, August is a terrible time to release records. It's, you know, everyone's on holiday in Europe, all this stuff. And what are you putting them back for? And I'll be coming to go, oh, I'm doing my finals. And the guy just sitting himself laughing. Um, <laughs> as, as similarly he did, he often laughed at us, actually. We, so we had to send him an invoice. And I remember asking around at university if anyone knew what an invoice was. And arriving at our token mature student on our course who was 23 who was able to explain to me what an invoice was which given we were doing economics is is quite scary really isn't it but um but yeah so it very much kind of one thing dovetailed into another yes so you were just releasing your first um single on sarah while you just finished your um finals and then was it the case that you had a thought that actually we're going to continue this and this will be more of a full-time occupation well so the first one came out just as when I was in my second year. So by the time I finished university, we'd probably done, God, that was the end of 89. So we'd probably done 20 or so records by the time I graduated, I guess. 
So, and at that point, it could just about support us sort of on a student style lifestyle. So Matt at some point had done the enterprise allowance scheme. And so that was bringing in the £40 a week you used to get from that. And then I was just graduating and could sign on, basically. And uh, the, Sarah could just about support us. So Yes, the enterprise... So after, after two years, we made £5.25 in the first year. Yes. I remember that because we got a tax demand for about 15 grand or something insane like that. <laughs> wow. Yes, well, did you... I mean, at that stage when you were setting it up, obviously doing the fanzine and Flexi was probably quite a happy kind of happy-go-lucky mm. kind of thing. But then obviously when, when you do something a bit longer, there's this sort of, oh, actually, this is a business. There is other kind yeah. of... Yeah. And did that... Did you have that at the beginning or did you think, oh, well, actually, after record 30, we better better sort of look at what we were actually doing? It was it was definitely before 30. And I think it was probably the Enterprise Allowance Scheme that tipped us into doing, you know, saying, oh, it's a business. But... So maybe it was after the first year, something like that, and maybe Matt did the Enterprise Land Scheme for the second year, and you know you had to go on a bookkeeping course and that kind of stuff. Um, and then maybe by the time I graduated, so sort of started year three of Sarah, we were slightly more self-sufficient. But but yeah, I mean, as you know, you look back with some degree of horror at the fact that, of course, you never had any business insurance for the first few years, or you know, you never even knew you were supposed to, or. Um, you know, at what point does a hobby grow into a business? And I guess that's always, that's always quite vague, isn't it? So, it's a, it's um, a grey area, isn't it? You know, it's, it's a like, grey area. And, yeah. then, and then, yeah, but then, you know, it's tricky because you don't really expect most things like that. You don't really expect it to really last. So it's a bit odd when it's like, comes around and you think, oh, that's another year. How, how did yeah, that and of course we were living in a, you know, pretty rented flat with our address absolutely everywhere. So we would get... <laughs> You know, literally sacks of mail. I remember going to Paris or somewhere with the bands in about 1990 and coming back and the post office had literally got a sack for us. It took us all day to open. We'd got quite a benign landlord's agent who I think kind of knew what we were doing. But at the same time, you obviously weren't supposed to be running a business from this flat. And at one point we left the grill on and came back from Revolver with, we'd put out four, seven inches simultaneously and done 4,000 copies of each. So we'd got uh, several taxis, 16,000 seven-inch singles piled up, two fire engines, the landlord, um, us sort of sheepishly trying to stand in front of all these boxes so it didn't look like we were running a business. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. And were you were you sort of going out finding bands or were, were they coming to you and you were just having to, like John Peel used to say, you know, you just had these sacks of records you were trying to get through because I sort of having spoken to a lot of people they suddenly were saying oh yeah we really wanted to be on Sarah Records and sometimes they said we were lucky and they liked us and sometimes they were no they didn't think we were right for them so how did it kind of that process work? Mostly it was people sending us demo tapes or sort of word of mouth it we I mean we did go out to gigs in Bristol but we weren't sort of massive going out people we're quite shy retiring people so I think Boy Racer was the only band we um you know saw live and were bowled over by um not to imply the other bands weren't as good live it just wasn't how we got to know them um you know Heavenly had previously been in Tallulah Gosh so we were lucky enough to be at their first gig because we knew it was happening um the sweetest date we met at a gig and they gave us a demo tape at a gig but it wasn't seeing them play um and then some bands we'd sort of corresponded with for a while and sort of been aware of their previous projects and sort of, 
you know, Blue Boy spring to mind because they'd had a couple of previous bands and we sort of said, oh, we're definitely, you know, there's definitely something we like in there. And then for us, it really came together in Blue Boy. So there's sort of different things with different bands, but mostly people sending us demos. Right. And did and, and obviously you had an idea of the the kind of ethos and the style because Sarah Records quickly became, you know, there was certainly, you know, it was a bit like, I don't know if you remember things like 4AD and mm. there was a sort of classical label, I think ECM in Germany and that had a style that had a, you know, always a black and white cover and it was all very angsty classical music that sort of musos loved. And, and so Sarah Records also quickly had that kind of, um, yeah, a, a sort of an image to it that, um, yeah, so did were you, was that something that you'd really sort of cultivated or were very conscious of when you started? I think it's a, a bit of both. I mean, I think it, when we started, we sort of were putting out a Sea Urchins record and I think we always knew we wanted to put out more than one record, but we, we didn't go into it. I'd like to be able to say we went into it with a big master plan for sort of 10 series of 10 seven-inch singles and then, and then stop, and, and that wouldn't be true at all. But we... I mean, Matt, especially, I suppose, being a little bit older than me as well, knew very much which labels he admired and which he didn't admire and what he thought was wrong with the ones he did admire. So um, a lot of it came out of that and sort of looking at what everyone else did and sort of saying, well, you know, like that, don't like that, I suppose, in the way that, you know, people always kind of pass the baton on one way or another. Um, so, yeah, we always wanted it very much to be our label and our thing and and sort of very much inspired by that DIY ethic and quite we always wanted it to be political as well with you know with a small p in terms of um I suppose the way we priced things that we came very much out of that context of you know indie guitar bands doing a two-track seven inch and a three-track 12 inch with a slightly extended mix for three times the price with you know one extra song and if you're a fan you felt like you had to buy yes. these different versions and and it, i mean it's ridiculous and it's not ridiculous in retrospect but it sounds ridiculous in retrospect because it was also the sort of vinyl versus cd war as well and what we objected to about cds was just how expensive they were how big the profit margin was and the fact that you were basically being asked to buy all the records you already owned again yes. which is kind of the entire definition of capitalism really isn't it so so you know now I have no objection to CDs because they're cheaper than vinyl and um, they bar, barring the last few years resurgence of vinyl you know they they basically won as the dominant format didn't they but at the time it was quite a political thing to just do seven inches and say you know we're not going to play these marketing games and we're not going to um, put the people who really care about the music in a position where we're basically screwing every last bit of money out of them, making them buy the same thing yes. several times over. So there was there was a lot of that in it. Well, I always remember it was Cherry Red who did that compilation. It's either Pillows and Prayers or Prayers and Pillows, which was like... Pay Pillows no, and Prayers, yeah. Pay no more than 99p for a double album, which was like, oh, OK then. <laughs> yes, it sold loads, didn't it? Something I don't like, think that's one of the ones that lost money, is it? Because I think there's a few people done things like that where, um, you know, you price it so brilliantly, you actually <laughs> lose money on every one. And that's the second part of my interview with Claire Ward from Sarah Records. This is David Eastall, the C86 Show. I've still got another two bits of that interview to do. Um, this is going to be the 14 Ice Bears with the track called Come Get Me. No one else around And I 
Look at the people I've lost. Look at the mountains I've crossed. Running around in the frost. Running around in the frost. Wow, 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 wow. Take a shady bait to save me from a Russian I can't see just what I wanna see when I look at you And I too Everything here that was good Everything here that I could Put away in the world Put away in the world Wow, 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 wow The unmistakable sound of the 14 ice pairs with a track called Come Get Me. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Claire Watt from Sarah Records, where we talk about the label and the, uh, yes, the Sarah Records years. Claire, take it away. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we were distinct in that we were never really a business, or that was never the motivation. So we were just interested in putting out records we really liked. And if, you know, and you've got that kind of, I suppose, Venn diagram with the overlap of Matt's taste and my taste. And if it fell neatly in the middle and we really liked it, it would get released was pretty much how it worked. So there was no kind of master plan or no assessment of, you know, how well we thought it would sell or any sort of sense of, you know, oh, you know, so long as they're willing to tour or they're, so long as they're willing to do this, we'll release it. It was just, oh, great. You know, we'll put a seven inch out and see what happens. And you know, you'll never make any money out of a seven inch, but you know, if the band wants to go and do an album in our later years when we did albums, um, you know, great. And if they don't, then great or, or whatever. So I, I suppose we just didn't really see ourselves as connected to the rest of the music industry and what it was doing. It was a, a little bit of an irrelevance yes. to us really, both sort of stylist, you know, music style and everything else. So I don't know. I mean, I never think Sarah was as narrow as, our detractors think it was but I think it was inevitably narrow because the motive was just different from the motive of of most record labels yes and did you um, obviously there was well I think um that you, was there a plan just to get to 50 where number 50 was your fanzine board game from 1990 and was that the case that you were thinking this is going to be it at 50 no not at all actually um it's funny, I don't think we'd really thought about 50 until um, 
the guy from the distribution company, who I should name check, actually, I haven't mentioned him several times, but um, a guy called Mike Chadwick sort of said to, said to us, and I don't know, we'd have been on the early 40s or something, what are you going to do at 50? And um, I think I jokingly said, oh, we thought we might stop. And he was, oh, my God, don't do that, don't do that, you know. Um, but I think that was what sowed the seeds for us stopping at 100. I, don't, I mean, we hadn't scheduled that as early as 50, but when we started going into the 70s and 80s, I think um, we were starting to think about you know what where does this end where does it go and we were very very conscious that the normal routes by which record labels end were not something we wanted to pick so i mean you can sell out to a major well we didn't want to do that um you can just you know drop all your quality control gradually and start putting out slightly rubbish records well we really didn't want to do that um or you can go bust basically and they seem to be the three three options in front of us you know you know i'm not suggesting people choose those options but they're the options people end up with and they were the only three outcomes we were aware of for record labels and we very much thought well hang on we need to find a fourth option here because all of those were a bit hit. so that's where we came up with stopping at 100 and throwing a big party and it being a pop art statement and and that does seem to be one of the things. I mean, it was it was certainly never the plan. I mean, you know, in 1995, when we stopped it, it never crossed my mind I'd be on the phone to someone 23 years later <laughs> talking to them about it. Yes, I <laughs> so know. It does seem to be one of the things that's kind of given it something of a legacy because I, think, I suppose it's quite a unique thing to do, really. I, I guess it's quitting while you're ahead, isn't it? Or in, in the way that we all admire bands who... You know, you sort of hate it when your favourite band splits up, but also if they split up before they start putting out slightly substandard records, um, that's also brilliant, isn't it? So I guess that's what we were aiming for. Maybe maybe we're back to the Smiths here. Yes, well, I, I was thinking, I thought, yeah, that, well, perhaps it was great that Smiths did finish really, but, you know. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I know we it's can... some, certainly harder to admire some of them than others at the moment. Isn't yes, it? so. it's, a, it's a tricky subject. It's a whole other, <laughs> that's a different one, isn't it, really, the Smiths and Morrissey. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing which is quite amazing, because obviously you... you you know, when you were doing it and it was kind of like you were just putting these records out, little did you know that decades later, which is often the case, someone then thinks, oh, you know what, I'll, I'll make a film about this. And then someone else writes a book about it and then it gets this kind of amazing cult status. So it's kind of, I think it was John mm. Lennon once done a song on, I think, I don't know what album, Walls and Bridges, something like, everybody loves you when you dead and buried or something dead and six foot under and i, I realize that with sarah records you know because it's kind of perfect in the sense there's this one to a hundred and then you finish before it all got sort of messy and you did some weird kind of avant-garde jazz experimentation <laughs> with the muppets yes. but um you know uh, yes how did that feel when suddenly there was this kind of like interest and people wanted to make films and write books and spend their life for several years kind of dedicated to Sarah? I mean, very surprising at first, because I think after we stopped, there was probably the best part of 10 years when no one was really interested at all. And, you know, I remember someone saying to me at a gig once, oh, didn't you used to be, like, you know, and you really did used to be someone, but you weren't anymore. And um, so there was, there was a sort of long period when it was just, I guess we all kind of walked away from it in different ways and... I, in particular, wasn't really in touch with many people from from the label times, and I guess you know inevitably social media has changed all that as well. So, back in touch with a lots of lot, lot of brilliant people, which is which is really great. But I, I guess you always come out with something like that. You know, um, everyone probably came out a little bit battered because we were very young and very um, 
intense, I suppose. The whole, you know, the whole thing's very intense and very emotional for, you know, people pour, pouring their hearts and souls into their songs and their music and us pouring our hearts and souls into our record label and um, everyone not always agreeing. Um, so, but yeah, then there's a little bit more interest was generated and we'd had the songs up on, I was going to say Spotify, it might not have been Spotify, um, 12, 13 years ago when we made them available digitally for the first time. But, you know, we'd put the songs up for download some time back and then Lucy got in touch about the film and I don't know, Matt and I were probably both a bit baffled actually, but we <laughs> we went for we basically ended up spending the afternoon in the pub with her and um getting liking her enormously and, and just kind of thinking, well it seems like she's gonna do this whether we get involved or not. So we may as well um get involved and at least we might be able to have some sort of um say in how it turns out. So so originally she was doing a, a master's degree. And it was meant to be a sort of short for her final dissertation. It wasn't really meant to be a feature-length film, but she got really, really into it and obviously proved really good at it. And, um, you know, it was on this mission to track down all of the bands, which um, some of whom we could put her in touch with and some we couldn't. And um, it, I guess it kind of ran away with her in a way. But uh, but we, we always trusted her to do a, a good job because she, she got... I mean, it wasn't just that she liked the music. She's... Um, She's from near Bristol and she had actually, I think, been in touch with us when she was about 15 and bought the first compilation. I think she maybe come round and bought it or something. So so she'd got the Bristol connection. She she totally understood the sort of politics and feminism of the record label. So I think she was able to bring that through in the film really well. And then, of course, um, you know, she liked the music as well. But in, and in the film, the music speaks for itself. So, um, so it's, you know, it's hard to imagine anyone anyone better to have done it to be honest so I think she's done a really 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 good job and made a really interesting film yes and the same and Michael is it Michael White who did the book as well yeah I mean again that that was quite quite an amazing piece of work as well yeah and again I mean both of them huge long projects for the people involved I mean they've given away big chunks of their lives to it which um I hope they don't regret at all. So, yeah, I think the, the book is. Um, I think the book focuses a little bit more on the music, which, I mean, I guess in a film you don't have to talk about the music because you hear the music, don't you? Whereas, I think Michael's an absolutely brilliant writer at evoking music. So, I, I feel like the film focuses a little bit more on the label, and the book focuses a little more on the bands, which is, you know, probably quite a good balance, really. Yes. And does it feel because obviously a lot of these people are still I've, I've realised are still making music in various ways and there was that um last week wasn't there there was um, various bands who got together and played I mm. think four bands and and so it must feel quite nice seeing people like you know um I don't know was it Boy Racer even even as Boy we speak Boy Racer and even as we speak and Stuart from Boy Racer lives in Arizona yeah um, although he grew up about 10 miles from where I grew up in Yorkshire and um even as we speak we're in Australia so you know they haven't been over in 25 years and Secret Shine wasn't it as well Secret Shine yeah who were in Bristol and Action Painting who back in the day were from Gosport so so no I mean that was lovely I went to a couple of the shows and it was um, really nice to see the bands play it was really nice to um you know see the people again so so yeah that was that was lovely and there's some you know I mean there's always different reissues coming out and and Stuart runs a label called Emotional Response so he's reissued the Even Speak album and um, some other things as well. So, you know, that's 
that's all nice. It so. is nice. And one thing that I noticed from bands, which is slightly different because you were the uh, sort of the label owner, was the dealing with the admin and the administration and the p- things like publishing. How did you navigate that side of Sarah Records? Oh, kind of trial and error, really, I think. I mean, we genuinely started out knowing nothing about anything and just thinking we'll put a record out. So, um, you know, if you catalogue the various expensive mistakes we made with, you know, the colours we put on labels and the um, cost of different things we did that turned out to be absolutely crazy. Um, and then we had to stick with because we were in a series of 10, that you know, that kind of stuff. So we didn't really know anything about the... Um, business side of it at all when we started. I mean, I mean, I guess we were in the fortunate position where pretty much all of our bands were writing their own material, so we weren't really releasing covers only very occasionally. So that meant the writer and artist were the same people, and we did at some point set up a Sarah Publishing to run alongside Sarah Records, so we could at least make sure they got those royalties collected, and we could, you know, we worked on the standard fifty-fifty deal that indie labels tended to so um you were making sure that your publishing and your record orders were wrapped together in that um but whilst having everything properly registered so um so that's how we dealt with it i hope you're paying attention there's a lot of information in there everything you needed to know about setting up a record a label but were afraid to ask there you go that's the third part of my interview with claire i've got one more bit to go but to keep the party rolling and to uh just possibly give you a bit of a break from all our interest and chat this is a bit of Tallulah gosh take it away amelia
unbelievably amazing sounds of Tallulah Gosh and um, with the track called Tallulah Gosh, I do believe. Anyway, featuring the one and only Amelia Fletcher on vocal and songwriting duty, I think. I don't know. Anyway, look, there's a book that we keep talking about in that interview that I had with Claire. Um, it's, um, it's titled Rip, Torn and Cut, subtitled Pop politics and punk fanzines from 1976 it's on the manchester university press it's worth checking out though it's in hardback and costs about 70 pound at the moment a paperback edition is going to be coming out either at the end of this year beginning of the next year it does feature some fantastic chapters including one on uh, one by uh, claire and uh, like i said worth Trek tracking down and uh, there's also another one on the c86 fanzine world as well right next bit of the interview this is the fourth and final part so do pay attention pen paper at the ready this is when i asked claire about the aim of the label and this was her reply claire take it away our sort of aim really has always been to get the music heard as widely as possible so you know, one of the, many things obviously still frustrate you years later when people say things like, oh, they pressed limited editions to make them really high on the secondhand market. And, you know, we just didn't. We pressed as many as we could at the time that it seemed like you were going to be able to sell. And you always had that decision of, oh, we've got kind of 20 left and can you press another 500 or will you just sell another 30? And <laughs> and you'll yes. have, you know, and obviously storage becomes a massive problem and storing up your money becomes a massive problem because you restore it up in the old releases, you can't afford to do the new ones. So, you you know, so at some points we were paying for records to be destroyed where we'd um, made too many. And, um, you know, you just can't keep that sort of physical product available. It's 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 incredibly difficult to do in terms of finance and storage. So um, I think that the whole ability to download is brilliant because it just does mean the music's out there and, and people get to hear it and, you know, little bits of money trickle in. I mean, they're, they're not, um, you know, you're dividing up pennies a lot of the time for, for, um, yes, for Spotify, well, I... but you sort of have to go through, you have to go through doing that. So um, I'm very fortunate that Matt does all the annual accounting Um you know, we do just do it once a year these days for the amounts of money that come in through that. But at least it's available and at least um, the money does make, it, make its way through to the bands because it's up legitimately not, you know, not put up by by people who don't have a right to put it up. Yes. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, did you have such things? I mean, the master tapes of all this music, did you keep them or did they go back to the bands? No, we've got we've got those for most of them. Fantastic. I mean, have you ever thought of doing an exhibition of some, you know, after seeing David Bowie and Pink Floyd, the Rolling Stones and things? Do you think, God, we should do, you know, because obviously you've got boxes of these things. Do, do you ever think, God, I bet, you know, a, a, a sort of, this would make a great well, exhibit? There was one when they, so when the film first screened, um, it first screened in Bristol, which was obviously the perfect place for a place called the Arnolfini. Um, which is an art gallery and sort of cinema, I suppose, kind of venue. I saw McCarthy play there once in about 1988. Um, so there was an exhibition over a bank holiday weekend there where I think we might have put a couple of the master tapes out, but we just a lot of stuff we we found in the loft, basically. So we had all of the set, all the 107 inches up for display, and then we had um, all the compilation albums are named after places in and around Bristol. So we had some old maps we still had of Bristol and the album sleeves with sort of things showing where they were named after and and uh what else do we have in there sort of the the typewriter matt did his fanzines on 
the kids who who um, came to the exhibition were very excited by the typewriter because they'd never seen one before, <laughs> and um, you know just old old sort of posters and original photos that became sleeve artwork and and that kind of stuff. And it was really fun to put together actually. I mean I. I sort of joke with my partner that I'm an artist who had an exhibition at a proper art gallery, <laughs> which is obviously kind of nonsense, but it's a it's a nice thing to kind of uh, kid yourself. So, well, actually, yeah. seeing the Bowie one and and also going to various ones at the V&A, there is something kind of bizarre. I don't know why, but seeing a, a, a sort of the original letter or mm. something just just for some oh look at those lyrics, wow, you know, that's yeah, amazing, you know, yeah. that's that's. I what, think we had the original letter where Bobby from the Fieldmeister sent us the demo tape with I can't remember if it was one with Emma's house on if he sent us one before that and obviously we'd, we'd put something else over in the display place over his address because he's still at the same place but <laughs> it was sort of so very polite you know sort of dear sir or madam please find attached and, and um yeah just lovely yes and what would you I mean after this kind of doing the label and obviously having the chapter in the book I mean what would you kind of say to your 18 year old self you know well sort of a bit of advice if they were starting out with (laughs) with, with a similar with a similar kind of you know like oh yes enthusiasm and optimism I I just do it I suppose and um what we tried to do with Sarah, uh, it doesn't always work, is don't worry too much what anyone else thinks, that kind of believe in yourself and just go for it. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it's I've got quite a messy CV, but I certainly don't regret spending my, you know, very end of my teens and most of my 20s doing that. Yes. Well, I would imagine as CVs go, actually, you've probably got so much experience. that. Well, know... I'm a chartered accountant, so it's a quite odd CV. <laughs> I think sometimes I get invited to job interviews because people are mildly curious. It's like, oh, we've got five, we want a sick, let's show it, throw in this weird woman with the um, CV. She'll probably be a laugh to me. Um, so, yes, I know. Yes, it's but no, def- I mean, definitely. it's. Because um, I was going to say, because obviously John Peel was kind of, you know, kind of, he was good towards the label, but obviously the, rec- the, the music press were far from nice towards Sarah Records at times. Did that slightly... Irritate. Yes. I mean, John, I think John Peel was great to us. I mean, we think that he played every single seven inch we put out at least once. And you could kind of tell the ones he didn't like that much because he only played them once. And mm-hmm. then, but so he was hugely supportive and that, you know, without that. And we got the first, so the first single Pristine Christine he played and Janice Long played on the evening session. And that, that first one, I mean, it got singles of the week and a few more did, but then we had a sort of very, very long, very negative period with the music press where um, they hated us. And they, they, I mean, we were quite aggressive towards them in that, you know, we were just so outside of the music industry, even the indie music industry. So we were very much, you know, in Bristol doing our own thing. We didn't really go out. We didn't hang out with journalists. We didn't know people. So and, and you know it, it it felt really dodgy at the time but I suppose it's also common sense that if you know someone and you get on with them and they suggest a band to you and then you quite like it and whereas if you just don't know the people you haven't got any way of sort of pulling those strings have you so um so they hated us they were they I mean they were really nasty I mean they I mean I guess it's no surprise they were sexist because um the world continues to be sexist, hopefully slightly better than it was 30 years ago. But um, but they 
put a lot of the bands down in a way that was sexist, that was homophobic, that was just kind of bullying, really, as well. And, and some of it was just so unpleasant. Yeah. Um, so, but at the same time, sometimes at least people knew the records were out, I suppose. I mean, maybe the worst thing is to be ignored from, I think, from the label perspective, you could always kind of think, well, we've got another record out next week and at least the people who know us and and like us now know it's out even though the review was unspeakably nasty but you know from a band perspective when you've poured your whole heart and soul into this song and it's your one shot against some publicity and it just gets pissed all over for being on sarah um, yes you know it's horrible and then, then we had a phase of you know, unlike every other shit record on Sarah, this one's not too bad. You know, about <laughs> ten records in a row got reviewed on that basis. And you think, well, really? Um, yes, I know. Well, it's I, I suppose I know, you know. I often wonder what some of the journalists must kind of think as they sort of look back at their time. And then there was people. I mean, one of the I remember always remember John Peel used to have a show on the World Service that I recorded because I was always worried I'd miss something he'd play. And, yeah. And I remember hearing him play the Hit Parade, see you in oh, Havana, yes. and thinking, God, that's amazing. I had to sort of write to the band. I think luckily he had the address, so I had to send him a a check or postal order for one pound twenty, and and I got this single back, and which was amazing. And and then finding out years later through the internet and all that that Julian had sort of become this really big kind of PR journalist guy, you know, in, um, you know. Yeah, he's something like, I might have this slightly wrong, but um, something like the PR for the Beckhams or, yes. I mean, hugely successful. So, and a lovely, lovely guy and still putting out records. So. I know, and it is like, oh, the people's journeys and, you know, and it, yeah, so I often think that it is kind of interesting what sort of became of some of these uh, these kind of artists and people. And you must sort of, occasionally sort of see what they've gone on to do and think oh that's amazing yes yeah i mean absolutely so i saw some of our old band members yesterday actually it was at the wedding presents at edge of the sea oh, little festival they do in brighton every year and um catenary wires were playing which is rob and amelia who were in heavenly and yes. before that to gosh and Jetstream pony were playing which best from aberdeen is in who i think are really really great and um, Anne-Marie, who was in the field mice, had come down to see them. So it was nice to see her. So, yes. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Of course, there's a few people who aren't around anymore as well. So. Yes, well, that's also sad. But yeah, I know Amelia's um, at the UEA here, so um, don't we? Of course, she is. Yes, and she became. I can't, I, she's either got a CBE or something. She's got an OBE, OBE. which is uh, yes, quite impressive. <laughs> and yeah, I just think it's fantastic. It's like wow, that's really, and it's amazing that she wants to still sort of play music rather than just go. No, I'm an academic now. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're such great songs as well. So yes, really like It is fantastic. Oh look, Claire, thank you ever so much for giving me this time. And, um, no, not at all. Thank and, you. And what I'll do is, when I put it out, I'll uh, I'll tell you when it goes out. But that's good. But it's funny because I actually have managed to sort of get through quite a few of the Sarah records, so um, artists and bands. So um, yes. Because did you do a thing with Anne Marie from the film? I, a couple of I did. Ago. Yes, I did uh, last year. Um, yeah. Last, I remember. Yeah, I was going to say I thought that was you because I remember sort of you know seeing quite a lot on Twitter and <clears> tweeting <throat> and stuff like that. So. Yeah. So I did. So, so yeah. And then there was. Um, I think I've done Blue Boy, but I haven't put that out yet. And I have, I did speak to Beth and did a nice one with Beth, but then 
it all sounds a bit odd with Aberdeen. So she nearly with it's a bit odd. So it's yeah, um, I think there's something. Yes, so she's sort of internal dispute, shall we say? So there's, but so. yeah, there's yeah, well, yeah. So the sea urchins and the orchids. I've just had a look, and the fourteen ice bears I've done as well. So um, oh, yes. yeah. So I'm so oh, great. Well, thank you. <laughs> so I'm slowly going through. It's you know, it's actually quite an, it's quite amazing some of the stories that people have got and, and stuff. But it's kind of, <laughs> but I mean, it's quite interesting because you know, like thirty years later, a lot of these bands have suddenly, not all of them, but quite a lot have started to play music a bit more again. You yes, know? yeah. So like and with some and people, it's like you know, your kids have grown up and you, you've kind of got the time again, isn't yes. it? Sort of life takes over, or. or I don't know, people fall out a bit because they've spent a bit too much time together and it's got a bit intense and then you realise they're actually your oldest friends and yes. well, you I, like playing music together. I think the latter has been quite, pop, uh, quite um, yeah, that's quite a common one really. I think a lot of people just say, well, that's it, I'm putting my guitar away and then 30 years later just remember their youth and go, actually, it was quite yeah, good fun. Yeah, just remember it was fun as well, so yes. why you started it. So, so I think Great, you... well, really nice to talk to you. Yeah, so. look, thank you ever so much, Claire, and I'll keep in touch, but thanks for okay. that and uh, much appreciated. My pleasure. Yeah. Okay, thanks uh, a lot then. Have a Bye. great day. Bye-bye. And that really is the last part of my interview with Claire from Sarah Records. A big thank you for giving me the time. Hugely appreciated. Uh, this has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages, especially if they're positive and groovy. You can via Facebook or Twitter, which is at C86 Show. Do check it out. If they're not, then, um, I don't know, don't bother. Have a great week, and um, I'll leave you with another track. This is Secret Shine.